Welcome to another edition of Baseball and Beyond, presented by Masses Restaurants, five locations in St. Louis. I'll talk about my title sponsor, as you know, a little bit more here later in this program. Took October off, kind of like the Cardinals have been doing the last couple. <laughs> but that's, uh, that's okay. They need a break, and now uh, they're going to make some big moves, right? So we'll be talking baseball throughout the winter, uh, but you know this thing is called Baseball and Beyond, and uh, I had some ideas of trying to get different type of people on here uh, in the winter especially. And I had Tom Green, the comedian. We had him back in uh, August, talked about comedy and MTV. And I started thinking about my favorite time in music. I was a child. I was about, what, eight, seven, eight, nine, 1983, 84, 85. And the music scene was ridiculous. Um, I look at music today and just think, man, it's terrible. Taylor Swift and Bieber, and I mean, they're just the top 20. I know it's not for me. But back in the day, you could have everybody. You could have Quiet Riot. You could have the Stray Cats. You could have Human League. You could have Men Without Hats. This is Dr. Seuss. So I thought, who could I talk to about this? Who, who would be a good person to take me back to my childhood and just right there in the middle of that scene? And I narrowed it down to the first five MTV VJs. And uh, the one uh, that I remember as a kid was Alan Hunter because he was kind of a goofball, quirky, like me. And um, they were right in the middle of it. And so Alan Hunter and I uh, got together and finally had a chance to talk. And at this point now, I'm going to turn it over and say hello to Alan Hunter. Hello. Good to see you. Although people won't be seeing you, they'll be hearing you. But this is uh, quite the uh, thrill for me. I have to say that. Maybe they can conjure an image in their mind. Just uh, YouTube, an old uh, video or an old photo. I, I, so I do a lot of research for these, and I, I, I love looking at the clips of the uh, old MTV uh, early days. It's just it's amazing. But the one that I ran across, and I'm going to start with right away, that I had never seen or maybe forgot. Um, you guys uh, were so big with the WWF in the uh, 80s, and there's a clip here on MTV or YouTube where – you know, it was Roddy Piper versus Cindy Lauper stuff, and man, Roddy Piper grabs you and looks like he's about to kill you. And you know, back then we had uh, Richard Belzer get dropped on his head. You had uh, David Schultz beat up John Stossel. Were, were you afraid for your life with Roddy Piper? <laughs> well, the funny story behind that was that yeah, we were MTV hooked up with the wrestling crowd and uh, via Cindy Lauper, and um, we went with it. Um, and I got to know the wrestling world, and it was pretty weird, for sure. I mean, these people are a little bit nuts. But uh, Rowdy, when he came to the stage, that was the first time I met him. Just a sweetheart, just a lovely guy. I mean, they're all just, you know, it's theatrics. But uh, when we plotted that little press conference, it was choreography. He and Captain Lou knew how to do it. And uh, so we planned, uh, you know, the flow of the, of the press conference and all the fake insults that we would throw back and forth. But no one, we didn't really rehearse it. We just sort of plotted the choreography. He said he was going to come over and threaten me. That was all I knew. Maybe grab my tie or something. But uh, beyond that, I did not know that he was going to get so wild. I mean, and, and to look into this guy's eyes when he's just play acting was frightening, for sure. Because then he grabs me and pulls me over the table up into the air. <laughs> like by your a neck, total surprise. Yeah, by by your neck. I'll link that uh, clip on on the blog. But that was yeah, that was I, such I, fun time. But, but being you know being an actor and all, I went with the uh, I went with the scene. You know, I kept on going, man. Yeah. 
So you you talked about being an actor. Um, so just how do you end up on MTV? I think that's you were doing some acting. I remember they did a special maybe 15 years after you guys had all left, and you, you kind of were doing some acting in videos and stuff. So, so how does one go from wherever you were, kind of, uh, I don't know what kind of acting, maybe commercials and videos, into being the MTV VJ? You know, I never, I never stopped acting. I think I just acted like a VJ for a bunch of years. And uh, so <laughs> that was just another role. The role was Alan Hunter. Uh, I, I call it right place, right time. I mean, if you live in Toledo, fine town that it is, you probably have to get to a major market. And certainly back in the, in the eighties, you had to, to go where the business was. And the Mecca was New York and Los Angeles, as cliche as that is. You're not going to get discovered sitting in, you know, at home in your mama's basement. So I went to New York to, to be an actor, took, uh, went to school at Circle in the Square and fully intended to be on Broadway. I wanted to be in a Broadway show. I love musicals. Uh, my wife at the time and I were living a very romantic, young, theatrical life. She was in the business as well. So I was bartending and doing bit parts in little movies. I had a, a part in a David Bowie video fashion. Um, I was uh, just out of a new wave punk rock version of Shakespeare's uh, Midsummer Night's Dream in the Lower East Side of Manhattan in an off-off-Broadway production of it. And uh, so, I, you know, I was, I was leading the actor's life. Uh, and I got a call to, to, be, uh, to come to an audition. And um, I didn't really know what it was. I bumped into the man who was the brainchild behind MTV at a picnic in New York. He was a fellow Southerner. He came from Mississippi. I'm from Alabama. Went to school in Mississippi, and his family had some uh, familiarity with my wife's family. So it was kind of a, you know, it was it was a crazy hookup. It was a crazy link that I met Bob Pittman. And he didn't say anything other than that he was working on a cable station that would play music videos. And I said, oh, that's funny. I was just in a David Bowie video, so at least I know what they are. And I didn't hear from him. A week later, I got a call from the executive producer at MTV. He said, Bob bumped into you and wants you to come in audition. So I came in, auditioned uh, probably about two months before MTV went on the air. I was the last VJ they hired. And I had three consecutive auditions over about two weeks, and uh, all of them worse than the one before. (laughs) I was terrible, I thought. And then they hired me. Imagine that. So right place, right time, uh, ready when the door of luck opens up. You know, that's a, um, a, a fish out of water for sure because I was an actor. I needed a script and I was ready to play a part. And they asked me to stand in front of a camera and play me. So that was, that was a, a head turner for sure. But I caught on eventually. Yeah. <clears throat> so you're, uh, you're on this network that I, I mean, people that maybe are younger will just don't understand. Cable was not a thing yet. I mean, literally HBO kind of started in the late 70s. ESPN, obviously, everyone knows, started around 79. So MTV starts in 81. And basically, it's Pat Benatar and Nick Lowe, and no one's really doing videos. And it seems like the UK people come over with the Flock of Seagulls and Human League and like Duran Duran. And they kind of have this vision of what a video should look like. And everyone's like, ah, tell me a little bit about those early days, because it's you know, like I said, there's not a lot to program this 24-hour video channel with, and MTV is not doing TV shows. You guys are literally just saying, all right, here's uh, Pat Benatar with you. You got to love, or whatever song was back then. And then here comes the Flock of Seagulls and Saga and uh, these bands that knew, oh, here's what you do. You, you spike your hair up and look goofy and play uh, I Ran So Far Away. 
Well, you, I think you just said it. You stated it. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. Well, uh, cable was uh, in its infancy somewhat at the turn of the decade. I mean, at, you know, mid-70s, cable was starting to come along. But the only 24-7 channels were not only ESPN but CNN. So along comes uh, MTV programming 24-7 um, and, uh, and music videos. Yes, the people from the other side of the pond were more – uh, into making short promotional videos for their music, and that goes way back to the Beatles, even before then. And then you get into Elephant Parts with Michael Nesmith, who was uh, sort of there in the beginning of the, the start of MTV and helped consult some a little bit. But um, the video library was absolutely skinny. We had about 250 videos total. Ten of them were Rod Stewart, nine of them were Pat Benatar. And the rest, you had video pioneers like David Bowie, with ashes to ashes and fashion, he certainly knew what uh, the visual was all about, and he was perfect for it, obviously. Uh, but then the new wave of the young bucks like Duran Duran and U2, um, over on this side, it would be the Stray Cats. They knew that video uh, was uh, another part of the brand and um, and understood that it wasn't just a pretty face, but it was another another sense to stimulate in people. Um, and the music business at the beginning of the decade was in the toilet. It was just doing terribly. Record sales were down. Uh, and the business was trying to figure out what to do. And along comes MTV and stimulated things in 1981. And uh, it, was, it was up from there. There was no turning back, you know, once the visual was there. Um, um, it was uh, full steam ahead. So it was an odd beast. And I think people tuned into their cable channels and that first year, you know, it wasn't in the major markets of L.A. and New York. It wasn't in the big cities. It was only in the in rural America, in the heartland, really. And those people just went nuts for it because when you're a college student, you know, in Iowa and you come in at 2 o'clock in the morning and 20 of your buddies are sitting there in the college uh, lobby watching MTV, oh, my God, that was magic. Yeah. <laughs> and there, there it went. So, and I mentioned those bands, like – you know, Duran Duran had talent, obviously. Stray Cats have talent. Quiet Riot. These are all human league flock of seagulls. But do, do these bands, let's say this is today. I mean, back then, it worked because of MTV. And I, like, like I've, I've been saying, and you know, I have younger friends, and I'm like, boy, this is just terrible music. This Justin Bieber and Taylor and Katy Perry, it's nice. But you look at the top 20 today, there's just nothing... It's the same. Everything sounds like Ed Sheeran's to Sia. They all sound the same. But back then, the Stray Cats would come on, then Huey Lewis, then Duran Duran. Um, yeah. I mean, do you think the Stray Cats or Duran Duran or Human League and are as big without MTV? Right? I mean, I, I think I'm answering my own question again, Alan. There I'm sorry. <laughs> I think you said it, Brad. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. Brad. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it just... Uh, I think the answer would be the time was right for these bands to uh, to emerge. The question is, would they have gotten as far as they did without MTV? I think the music business in general wouldn't have picked up like it did in the early 80s without MTV. I think it was a natural occurrence, to be honest. It was like evolution. Um uh, uh, so, yes, you know, Duran Duran and other bands actually underrated for their music. Um, and as a lot of people and artists feared, you know, once you bring in the video element, the music will be relegated to the back seat, which wasn't true at all. If your song wasn't good, it wasn't going to be propped up by a video, except in a novelty sense. You know, a Hey Mickey from Tony Basil 
or, you know, other novelty things like fish heads from Barnes and Barnes. You know, that, that was a novelty and the video was fun to watch. And that's what populated that early MTV. And then throughout its time, you had some of those novelty videos that made it fun. To your point about the variety, um, uh, of course, there is a lot more of everything in the entertainment world nowadays. That is the issue, correct? Five zillion cable channels, tons of movies and TV to see, so much television you can't watch it all. And the music is flooded with tons of artists because the playing field has been leveled. There's so many different outlets. Hence, how do you weed through all of it? Uh, to me, the cream still rises to the top in probably the same numbers, a different percentage but uh, but but back then um you know there weren't as many people on the planet there weren't as many artists uh but their exposure on mtv to me was a double-edged sword if you were really good uh in every sense of the world word from your music to your brand then you were going to survive and do really great on mtv if you weren't so good i think mtv snuffed people out quicker <laughs> yeah. um, you know, interestingly enough, it probably dangled a few uh, bands and artists along a little bit longer if they had a really great look and some good videos. But the, the variety was, to me, the key to the success of MTV. You're absolutely right. No, what other outlet uh, but one TV channel played White Snake back-to-back with Howard Jones, back with Kaji Gugu, then Springsteen, then U2, all over the place, and... That's why I call the 80s, you know, the big rainbow tent. We all were there together. <laughs> you know, uh, if I didn't like White Snake, I would, uh, I would just hang on until, you know, my video came on from Duran Duran. Or if I didn't love Poison, then I knew that uh, Janet Jackson was coming on later. And there we all sat in this tolerant tent called MTV in the 80s. And that was the beauty of it. You, can't, you don't get that anymore for sure. Um, I will go backwards in a second, but you just made another point that I'm just going to have a soliloquy and then you can say whatever. But I was looking yeah, at a random... to go on. Yeah, no. I have a random top 10 from July of 1984 and the top 10, here's who's, here's who's on it. Prince, Bruce Springsteen, Duran Duran, Billy Idol, Cyndi Lauper, ZZ Top, Chicago, Nina, Culture Club, The Police. How about that? Pretty big names. You have Nina, 99 Red Balloons. Oh, did I yeah. mention Michael Jackson, who was huge for MTV, right? I mean, that's, that's of sort of when you guys kind of merge like superstardom and make a make a superstar he's great obviously and he's got his videos going in 1979 with off the wall but boy thriller comes out he does his thing and i remember that mark goodman interviewed david bowie and he goes well where where's the black artists yeah so it seemed not not that i know what was going on but consciously let's get michael jackson on he's going to be kind of this superstar is that kind of the feeling back then uh, sure. Michael Jackson opened the door to uh, pop music. I mean, heretofore MTV had built itself, rightfully so, as a rock and roll channel. Uh, a little disingenuous when you've got bands like Culture Club and, and a bunch of the new wave groups uh, that were playing on MTV. You know, the, the kids from the UK loved early Americana music. They loved Motown, ABC, and Duran Duran all had that kind of funk uh, rock and roll vibe. And, and, and paid homage to uh, early American rock and roll, which uh, was predominantly black in the early, in the 50s and 60s. And that's what influenced the Rolling Stones. So for us to say we were just a rock and roll channel while we played Boy George doing kind of an R&B vibe um, uh, uh, was, was not correct. But that was the, you know, there was no play. Who was going to make up the playlist for MTV? It, it was sort of, what are the parameters? 
So they went along for a couple of years uh, playing the kind of music they, they thought fit the video jukebox world. Uh, but when Michael Jackson came along, it was uh, their initial response, which I don't think is correct. Um, and I say they because really it was an executive team that was making these kind of decisions. You know, not the VJs as much as we had some input. Um, so Michael Jackson comes along and is like, well, he's not really for us. Then they were threatened by the record companies. It says, we'll pull all the rest of our artists if you don't play Michael. And so their eyes were opened up, and it was the total right move, obviously, to bring Michael on board. And that opened the floodgates for pop music. And yes, that was kind of the beginning of it, whether it was black or white or in between. Uh, Lionel Richie's of the world, a little bit more R&B influenced music, straight ahead to R&B, could come on. If it was a good video and a good song, it belonged on MTV. So the parameters were thrown even wider. Thus, in 1984, you had music from all over the, the place, every genre represented, except for classical and country and pure jazz. But, you know, you had The Clash, and they, they, they represented reggae and jazz and rock and roll and punk. Um, and then you had pretty boys like Duran Duran. So yeah. pretty cool. You mentioned good videos and you mentioned Lionel Richie. That's, you can't say those in the same sentence. Although <laughs> if you, if you go watch all night yeah, long, well, it's, it's really it a good video. And sometimes it was a great song. I mean, Peter Gabriel to me was the one who combined both of them, um, in the best way. I mean, Sledgehammer is a great kick-ass song, tons of fun and a cutting edge video. Um, and, and so was Big Time, so was Shock the Monkey for that matter. But then you have Once in a Lifetime from Talking Heads, which is about as simple a video as you can get. It's really basically a weatherman in front of a green screen. But it was David Byrne and Talking Heads, so yeah. it's all over the place. I mean, in the beginning, the videos in their infancy, you know, short of David Bowie, who already knew what a great concept was with Ashes to Ashes, that was relying on the, the kind of nascent... Um, you know, video technology of the time, the cheesy overlays and all that kind of stuff. But it was still cool and vibey. And late at night, it was, you know, uh, it was hallucinogenic. But then you had Rod Stewart who would, um, who would, you know, um, make a video that fully uh, went along with the song lyrics, standing in the rain by a light pole, smoking a cigarette. And he would translate that concept literally. <laughs> it was no... There was nothing more conceptual than that. And others went crazy with the, with the concept of their video, you know, and, and took it in a totally different way. But at that point, the door was wide open and anything went. Again, that was the beauty of MTV. Anything, um, anything was good. So you guys had a bunch of artists obviously drop by. And I know, you know, I think JJ and Mark kind of got the interviews more of, this, more of the time. I think you even kind of mentioned that, but... David Lee Roth coming through there, um, he, he got it. I mean, that's a rock and roll guy, but he understood exactly what was going on. Any of your favorite interviews? Did you, did you get a chance to talk to David Lee Roth? Or um, I guess Steve, you know, Aerosmith was kind of in their down period then, but do you have any favorite? Uh, I'm going to get to Live Aid in a little bit, so save that one. But anything uh, just that came, anybody who came through that you just remember thinking, wow, this is. This guy oh, gets sure. it a lot. I mean, I think each of us get asked that question, and, and it's always hard to pin down your favorites because there were so many. Martha got to interview David Lee Roth, which you know was her heartthrob, and he lusted after her as well. And they had this, they had this cute little uh, thing going, little chemistry going during that that particular interview. Um, I still ask my sister if there was anything more than we knew, but she's she's remained mum all these years. 
Um, uh, I had high highlights and lowlights. My worst interview, not because of me necessarily, was uh, with Frank Zappa, who wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't really a mainstream MTV artist, but along with his daughter Moon Unit, they had uh, Valley Girl. So we brought him on, and he was uh, kind of an ass, you know. But that's my Frank Zappa. He was, I, I knew him and knew that's what he was all about. He came back two weeks later when his daughter came back on with Dweezil and they did a guest VJ spot and he apologizes to me for being a dick. <laughs> I said, thanks, man. Appreciate that. Because I was a huge fan of yours. Uh, Ozzy Osbourne was a trip because he was out of his mind. <laughs> and as, and as Sharon said, when she brought him onto the studio and he seemed, uh, he seemed out of it, she said, oh, he's got a cold and he's taking medicine. <laughs> and he uh, proceeded not to make any sense during our interview, but he was a sweetheart, you know, and I tried to, that was more of a case of me trying to help him through the interview more than anything. Uh, I think that in between, you know, interviewing uh, Bono and The Edge for the first time on the studio set uh, and, and introducing The Edge and Bono, hmm. and they giggled about that for the rest of uh, the interview. Um, interviewing Dan Aykroyd, interviewing the people from the movies. MTV became the epicenter of really all entertainment. So artists came on to promote their music and film people came on to promote their their movies. Kevin Bacon and I got along talking about our hair mousse that we put in our, our thin, light hair. <laughs> we buddied up on that. My last interview for MTV was with Billy Joel in Russia. And I think that was my most... Uh, um, I valued that one the most, I think, uh, highlight of my career, going to Russia for a couple of weeks during Perestroika in 1987 and interviewing David Bo uh, uh, Billy Joel on his trip there was, uh, was awfully satisfying. When do you realize that you have, you and the four others have maybe the coolest job? I mean, like I said, as I look back at this era and I think, who can I talk to about my favorite time in music? This really is my favorite time. As a kid, I think you're shaped you know, by your dad and your friends and your cousins. And we, we had this jukebox that we'd go to a pool and we'd just hit Golden Earring, Twilight Zone, or Van Halen Jump. But when do you realize, holy shit, this is a cool job? Or is it, does it, is it like later in life when, man, that was, man, that was crazy time? No, I think we, we realized that we had uh, hitched a, a ride on something really pretty cool, and it was uh, you know half a year into it. I mean, Mark Goodman and I, I tell this story, uh, sitting in the green room listening to uh, the police, everything, every little thing she does is magic, um, and thinking, wow, this is a pretty cool gig. I hope it lasts. When we started going out to do promotional appearances uh, months into the gig, we didn't have an understanding of its impact yet, but because again, we lived and worked in Manhattan and um, we didn't, you know, we could walk the streets and uh, fairly anonymously uh, and weren't getting great seats at, uh, at restaurants at that point. But you go to Jersey or we would fly out to the Heartland to do a promotional appearance and a thousand people would be standing in line at a record store to get your autograph. And it was like, holy cow. So that was. Um, I think that was uh, intimidating, exciting, uh, humbling that um, this thing was catching on, and that was probably a half a year into it. So that whole first year was a real head spinner. Uh, and certainly at the end of that first year, we understood that Middle America was flipping out about this thing that we had constructed. Uh, and by year one, when it started getting into Manhattan and Chicago and L.A. and San Francisco, uh, and the business of the music business started 
um, latching on to MTV, and the advertisers started paying to put commercials on uh, that we knew it, it was really having an impact. And that first year, you know, you'd see the spaceman floating in space in a commercial break. Well, that was not because we just wanted to be cool. People loved that. There was no commercials on MTV in the first little while. Well, that's because they couldn't sell ads. <laughs> they weren't. Nobody, nobody was paying to to put their commercial on MTV because they didn't think it was working. And then uh, when the record business started selling the the Stray Cats in the middle of uh, you know nowhere, and Duran Duran records were being asked for at record stores in uh, the you know the middle of Ohio. The music business went, whoa, we put our video on MTV and the kids actually watch it and then they want to go buy the record. So um, that was that was pretty wild. To, to further that and end this uh, long soliloquy, the, um, you know, year two, year three, MTV began to be talked about and referred to in the media, uh, whether it was music or movies or TV, they talked about um, a commercial being MTV-esque. Uh, like MTV videos, fast-paced edit, montage, editing. Uh, then we knew we had really, you know, hit the big time because now MTV was the generic term for cutting edge, for hip, and for what's new and fresh. Um, and then we knew we had really, really upped the game, and we were really part of the landscape of um, of entertainment. You know, I'd say culture. MTV did influence the culture somewhat. Uh, and we ruined a lot of minds hmm. to this day. So the impact started to become evident to us two or three years into it. You know, when we had made the music business uh, profitable again, when bands emerged, as we talked earlier, because of MTV, you know, because of our success, bands wanted to be on MTV. They didn't just want a record deal and to be on their local radio station. They now wanted to be on MTV. Yeah, it's crazy. And everyone remembers like the little—they're called IDs in the business, but like Billy Idol, I want my MTV. Everyone did them. Yeah. You know, you had yeah. everybody that well, you that could possibly think. Of. Push came about a year into it when you saw Mick Jagger say, "I want my MTV." He was the first one to be, you know, edged into uh, to doing the promotion because they were sucking wind. Uh, 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 Warner Amex, the, the head company behind it, was not making any money and they were ready to pull the plug. So they had to do something and they got these major stars from Bowie to Townsend to Billy Idol to Cindy Lauper to come up uh, and say that very famous, iconic advertising line. And it worked. Call your cable company now. You know, people did. Yeah, I remember when we got cable. I'll never forget the day. It was like a portal had been opened. It was unbelievable. What? We have 50 channels now instead of five? That's uh, right. And a remote exactly. control. Um, a little more time with you, Alan, if you don't mind. I just want to wrap yeah, up with uh, Live Aid. I'm going to ask about a few events, but I, again, I went did some research, and uh, I remember that you were at Live Aid. All of you were at Live Aid, but I had never seen your interview with Led Zeppelin. So uh. they... they uh, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant uh, play together, I guess, for the first time ever, and Jimmy is just out of his mind drunk, but it's great. What was it like knowing just beforehand, holy cow, I'm going to go talk to Led Zeppelin after they just got done playing Stairway to Heaven for the first time, and yeah. what, was that, what was that day like, that just being there? Well, for that, that day was 17 hours long on the air for us, and I think it was just a head spinner. It was so, um, it was so monumental. There were so many historic moments happening hour by hour. I felt under, I felt overwhelmed and under, um, 
I, I didn't know that I had the chops, really. People like Mark and, and JJ, who had been in the business longer than me and more journalistic and more, uh, you know, JJ was a great interviewer and he had this, you know, this canon of work. A shame that he had to be over in London and we couldn't be with him, but he was holding down the Wembley uh, broadcast. Um, so when it came time to extemporaneously interview greats like Led Zeppelin, I didn't have the historical knowledge. I mean, I was into them, but because of my older brothers. But uh, I was more a new waver, and I was more into the music that we were playing on MTV. So, but, you know, I actually watched that interview not long ago, and I wasn't unhappy with how I handled it. The main thing as an interviewer to do when you don't have every um, album of an artist in your in your mind to draw from, you don't ask stupid questions, you just ask short and sweet questions. <laughs> uh, it was... It was uh, we didn't all realize how bad of a performance it was. The cool thing was that Phil Collins had flown over on the Concord to be there. And he had had little rehearsal, so he was just trying to fudge his way through. But we were 20 yards, you know, from the center stage on stage left, or stage right, rather, doing our broadcast throughout the day. So we didn't really hear the show broadcast that well. Um, and we didn't hear what a debacle it was. But we sensed there was a lot of tension. When I was thrown in the mix, I was the jock on the air at the time, go backstage, interview them now. Um, MTV had had some cachet in 1985, so the artists respected us because we were the major outlet in the world for their music. Um, and so no one gave us any trouble. You know, uh, that's what we found with a lot of artists, as persnickety and curmudgeon as, as some of them could be. They paid respect to MTV because they, they knew where their bread was buttered. But there I am in front of Jimmy Page, Robert Plant. Phil Collins is over on the side looking oddly tense. Mm. And you, you're, you're right. Jimmy was out of his mind drunk. <laughs> and John Paul was somewhere in the background. And, uh, and Robert did his best to be uh, kind of the classy uh, English rocker that he was. And I just tried to ask, how did that feel? You know, and uh, I didn't get much of an answer from him. But, you know, other interviews that people have put up on online and God bless YouTube. I don't know where people come up with some of these videos that they find. But I saw an interview that I did with Mick Jagger backstage and with Tina Turner. I mean, just the who's who backstage of Live Aid from Jack Nicholson and movie stars to sports stars to rockers all hanging out um, was just amazing a total head spinner so you just put the microphone on somebody in in front of their face and say uh you know how, how did that feel <laughs> and see if you got an answer it's just, crazy yeah and that that lineup like i said in 84 85 is like the the time period but literally every single band bono the u2 is there just coming up and queen just completely brings down the house in london and yep. zeppelin yep. and and Phil Collins plays both. It's just crazy. I mean, Bruce Springsteen, just everybody was there. And if you had that concert today, you know, obviously a few people aren't with us anymore, but you say, hey, we got Zeppelin, The Who, Springsteen, U2. <laughs> it's like, what? Where, where do I sign up? And they tried it again, didn't they? They tried Live 8. Yeah, that was and, no uh, and, and, you know, that, but nothing will ever have the same magic uh, as the first event in anything that's monumental. So that's just, uh, that's nature. And I understand that, but uh, yeah, the combination of people of the times, 1985, the need around the globe, artists coming together, um, 
uh, it, it was it was pretty amazing. And there were some groundbreaking performances. U2 really came into their own at Live Aid. They were big before that, but they became international superstars. And their creds went way up, and that was just two years before the Joshua Tree. I would submit that had they not played Live Aid, the Joshua Tree would not have been as big an album. Yeah, I agree. So, so yeah, and, and that was the last uh, of Hall and Oates for a couple of years too. That little did we know that was their last uh, performance before they kind of took a hiatus from each other. So, big day. Yeah. Any other shows that uh, just pop off the top of your mind? Like I know Live Aid's the biggest. It's got to be the biggest. But any great concerts or moments be in the backstage area where you're like, well, this was pretty cool. I got to see this, or I got to talk to this person after this concert. Well, again, I think there's so many that it's hard to remember one. Isn't that funny? But live, the, the New Year's Eve uh, gigs, were, I think, were probably also the highlights for us. One, because they were totally live. I mean, as much as the bubble has already been burst, we weren't sitting there live playing videos. We were pre-recorded by day. So the live New Year's Eve specials that went on for four or five hours were grueling, uh, but amazing to be in the middle of the biggest party on the planet each year. You know, certainly in all of uh, the United States, everybody wanted to be at the MTV New Year's Eve party, at least in the music and entertainment world. So for the five of us to be trying our best to remain straight and sober for four hours live on the air as we counted in every time zone was just nuts. And to have uh, Howie Mandel be our floor reporter and aim up what we called a lipstick cam, a little teeny camera, which was new technology at the time, up a woman's dress who was wearing no underwear. That was a head spinner for a New Year's Eve live show. <laughs> and people came to expect crazy stuff to happen, you know, on MTV. Uh, that, that's why every video music award show thereafter has tried to, to get, uh, you know, more absurd and crazy. And uh, the video music award show at Radio City, the first one in 1984, with Bette Midler and Dan Aykroyd was, uh, you know, a huge occasion for all of us. So uh, for me personally, the spring break events were um, starting to become the highlight of my career, 1985, 86. I started to do more out of the studio stuff. I started to find my feet uh, at MTV um, as uh, kind of the man on the street comedian. And so to be down in front uh, in the middle of the Hawaiian Tropic ladies and a thousand drunk male uh, college students at spring break year after year, that was, you know, that was the beginning of MTV's signature content was reality and crazy stuff. <laughs> and I was there. So it's fun to have not only been at the beginning of MTV, but sort of uh, at the beginning of the ruination of um, of good television content, you know. In the beginning, it was fun, and then <laughs> in reality, ruined everything. Right, and I was there. Yay! No, those spring breaks were great, and they did those for years. Um, I know yeah. it's it's times change, and it's you know forty years now, almost well, almost forty years. So, do you look back and go, eh, it kind of sucks that the you know it's not MTV anymore. They're just showing catfish shows and. Uh, you know, and I hang out I with young. I don't hang on to it at all. I mean, that's an oft-asked question. Do you watch MTV or what do you think about it? I just think it's evolution. MTV started changing in the late 80s before Mark and I left. We had remote control. Uh, TRL was uh, on shortly thereafter. 
Um, and that was just a natural evolution for the channel. They couldn't be a video jukebox forever. In fact, the ratings started declining because people were getting a little, a little tired of just 24-7 video music, and they wanted to see some special programming. That Therefore, when you had spring break, which was special programming, when you had remote control, or when I went on the road for a thing called Amok in America, they, they just sold advertising like gangbusters, and the audience related to it. So sprinkled in with the videos that they loved, uh, having those kind of special programs uh, was becoming more and more popular. And MTV, I think, just went the natural course of things to diminish the role of the videos and add more lifestyle programming to appeal to uh, what else uh, young people were doing in their lives. And the demographic got smaller and smaller. MTV started and the demographic was, you know, from birth to death. Everybody watched MTV and then it just narrowed from there. Late 80s, early 90s, they started narrowing in on, you know, uh, 18 to 34 demographic and then it started becoming male-oriented. Um, so I think it was just a natural course of things. I don't watch MTV because it's not meant for me, but I don't begrudge um, the, the journey they've taken either. Yeah, I, I have I have younger friends who literally on a Friday night they'll just pick a playlist on YouTube, make their own, or they'll make a Absolutely. Spotify. You know, and so Absolutely. you can do it you all that way. The, you don't need the MTV was the only kiosk anybody had. That was the one place everybody went. It was the water cooler when a video premiered the night before. Everybody talked about it the next day. It was must see. Well, it was just part of the landscape. It was the backdrop of your daily life, and it was the only channel to tune into. Now with so many outlets and so many sources. Um, you don't need MTV to be your musical kiosk anymore because you've got SiriusXM, you've got Pandora and Spotify, you've got YouTube for the most part. Uh, no, they should never go back to playing music videos again. That would just be silly. It's irrelevant now. I wouldn't mind seeing the real world seasons one through 15, though. Still good TV. <laughs> I enjoyed that. So uh, I, we still get to hear you. What are you up to now? I love that Sirius... Uh, has all of you guys back doing the uh, eight serious uh, 80s yeah. on 8 and so we get to hear you guys and what have you been uh, what have you been doing uh, other than all that living in Chicago I know you're a cub fan you told me <laughs> just kidding I'm a cub fan because I lived in Chicago and I had to make a choice between the Sox and the Cubs no diminishment to the to the Sox but uh, the Cubs are my team um, I um, before I moved up here I had a film company and we uh, produced uh, several independent projects we went to sundance and south by southwest with a couple of films and some documentary work since i've been here i've been a little bit more chilled on that and concentrating on my main gig which is sirius xm i got the 80s show and then classic rewind in the evening so kind of doing what we did back in the mtv day except now i don't have to shave or put on clothes even i can do my show nude in my home studio here in chicago or wherever i go i've done my serious show from hotel rooms and from automobiles on the 405 freeway in Los Angeles. Uh, and soon I'll be doing um, that from Punta Cana, Dominican Republic. I mean, the 80s are no doubt resurgent somewhat. The demographic, you and me and other people in our age group are, um, are, are you know, are you're, wait, 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 80s fans. You're much older than me. Just let's, let's. I, I got to go there with you on that. I'm sorry. <laughs> So I have no idea. You look like a young punk to me, but it's funny. 
the demo goes down lower than I would have thought sometimes. Well, I was going to say, I grew up watching you on TV, so that makes, that makes me very young, much younger than you. Yeah, yeah, no one can say that. Minds early on, that's what we did. But I think that the 80s are hot again, so Mark and Nina and I at least have been going on a bunch of cruises. Um, we're doing these 80s shows, you know, these theme cruises and themed event weeks are more and more popular in general. But the 80s in particular has really caught on. So those are fun to do. It's fun to kind of interface with fans um, uh, and to see, to be honest, to see some of the bands that we haven't seen in a long time. Some of the people we were friends with to hang out with Loverboy or to, to sit and have breakfast with, uh, you know, Tom Bailey from the Thompson Twins or hang out with Cheap Trick. It's kind of a reunion for all of us to go and do these things. Hey, man, how you doing? You know, I got grandkids. Holy cow. Yeah. At least I can't say that right yet, so well, it's used, fun. I used to get mad like around 1988, 1989. I'd be pulling out my Stray Cats or Huey Lewis and the News stuff or Quiet Riot, and people would be like, "What? Are we, we're not listening to that now. We're into Whitesnake and Guns N' Roses. I said, this stuff is good, and it's going to be good forever. So I, at least I, Billy Idol, I knew Billy Idol was going to be good forever. Uh, but Well, these guys are uh, obviously experiencing a great deal of success playing live. I mean, the beauty of the music business now is that people don't sell – sell music so much as they play it live and i think that's to the benefit of the fan who have to unfortunately cough up some change to go and see these artists but you know who's who's the who's at the top of the pole star touring list but bon jovi and and the billy idols of the world and journey um they're killing it because they've got a huge fan base and a large canon of work and um, it's really great to see the resurgence of their popularity. Daryl Hall and John Oates killing it over the past couple of years. Oh well, they're playing. They're, they're cool playing again, right? And they're playing instruments, and they they still sound good. Yeah. So it's good music. Yeah. Huey Lewis was just here for uh, Lou Fest, and it's just like this yeah. guy can still play. He's sixty, seventy years old, whatever. So yeah, um, yeah, I think the music's great. I I can't thank you enough. Like I said, grew up watching you and wanted to talk about this time in in my life. And I know music is such a big deal to people, and so. To get someone cool. who who was actually there bringing it into my house, I can't thank you enough, Alan. Thank you so much. We look That's so swell, Brad. We are. I look, Mark and Nina and Martha and I are always uh, honored and tickled that uh, the people that grew up with us are still around and still excited. I mean, I, I think that's the that's the the difference between us and other media celebrities over the decades is that people felt Martha Quinn was their friend. Not some superstar, you know, um, and and because we were there every day in people's lives. So, you know, for good uh, or worse, we're we're sort of burned into people's neurons, aren't we? Which that can be painful at times, but we were there. <laughs> thank you once again, Alan Hunter, for joining me here on Baseball and Beyond. And thank you for joining me. I would like you to help me if you could. Go to iTunes, write a nice review, give it five stars. We want to see this podcast showing up under the other podcast you should listen to. That's what I'm hoping to do. And today was one of those beyond where I just picked a guy that I really wanted to talk 80s music with. And that's what we did. I appreciate Alan Hunter for joining me today. That was so much fun. Hope you enjoyed it. It's uh, fun to look back at those days when MTV was just big and making music history for uh, kids and pets and everybody else. (laughs) That was a Casey Kasem line. So Baseball and Beyond, presented by Massa's Restaurants, five locations in St. Louis. You know them, you love them. stlmasses.com is their address, their web address, where you can find their menus. 
You can find uh, directions, locations, great pizza, pasta, steaks, fish. I eat it all there. It's a great time. Masses Restaurants in St. Louis. Again, appreciate you listening. Go back and check out the archives during this off-season. We'll get some more baseball interviews going uh, once hot stove uh, is over and we're back into January. But uh, all these interviews I do here, I try to keep evergreen. They're not time-sensitive, so you can go back and check out Jim Edmonds as we talk about his career or Keith Hernandez or Mike Shannon with great stories or Bob Costas, Joe Buck. They're all pretty, pretty uh, evergreen. Hopefully, uh, if you're just catching on to this podcast, you can go back on your iTunes app and uh, scroll down and look at some of those older interviews. They're pretty fun and basically just trying to get stories and old stories, interesting stories, and having some fun with some uh, some of the greats in Cardinal history or baseball or beyond. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks for listening and go to iTunes. Give me a good review, say some nice stuff, and keep looking for new episodes as they appear. Take care, everybody.